0: Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 12 of the Second Age of the Crusaders and the title is The Lombard Wars. Now, why the Lombard Wars? Well, This is what the period in crusading history between 1228 and 1243 is usually referred to as, and the reason is that it was a civil war between the German Emperor Frederick II and the Crusader Barons led by John of Ebelin. If you listened to the last episode, you'll know that the German Emperor Frederick II was a pretty wacky monarch, a religious sceptic and freethinker who kept a harem and was excommunicated three times by the Pope. Nevertheless, he did succeed in in retaking Jerusalem, although this was really a token gesture by the Sultan of Egypt and Palestine, Al-Kamil. Now... Frederick left Jerusalem in 1229, but in 1231 he sent his marshal, an Italian called Filangieri, to assert his authority over the barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. He did this because he regarded himself as King of Jerusalem, but the barons had actually rejected him since he was neither a descendant of the Montferrat family, who were the royal family, and nor had he been elected king by them, which was the other way of becoming king. However, he did have a son called Conrad, with his former wife Yolanda, who was a Montferrat, and therefore his son was the true heir to the throne. So he was, in effect, the regent for his son. Now, what happened was that Frederick's army, which mainly consisted of soldiers from Lombardy, and hence the name the Lombard Wars, became locked into a civil war with the Crusader barons who couldn't stand him and didn't want him as their king. They were led by a very capable baron called John of Ebelin. And as you'll hear, the fighting was pretty serious and ranged from Cyprus to Palestine. Now, well, the question that probably springs to mind is why didn't the Arab states use this civil war as an opportunity to invade and finish the Crusaders off? And part of the answer is that they were involved in their Own civil wars. So basically, we have a period in the 1230s and 40s where both the Crusaders and Muslims are fighting amongst themselves. But I think there's another very interesting reason why the Muslims didn't attack the Crusaders at this time, which is that they actually didn't want to eliminate them completely. And there are two reasons for this. First, they actually quite liked having the trade with the West, which the Crusader cities at Tyre, Acre and Antioch facilitated. Remember, there were a lot of Italian merchants in all of these cities. And second, they didn't want to completely destroy the last Crusader outposts because they feared retaliation from the West in the form of another massive crusade. And I think that was a very realistic thing to be worried about. So, without further ado, let's hear more about this strange period of crusading history. As before, I'll read extracts from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In 1231, the German Emperor Frederick II sent an army led by his marshal, the Italian Richard Filangieri, to force the Crusader barons in Palestine and Cyprus to accept him as the King of Jerusalem. Filangieri decided not to attack Cyprus and sailed straight for Beirut instead. The town, which was ungarrisoned, was handed over to him by its timorous bishop, and he began to lay siege to the castle. Leaving it closely invested, he occupied Sidon and Tyre and appeared at Acre. There he summoned a meeting of the High Court and showed it letters from Frederick appointing him as warden. The barons confirmed the appointment, whereupon Filangieri proclaimed the forfeiture of the Ebelin lands. At this all the barons protested. Estates could not be confiscated unless the High Court so decided, after the owner had had the chance of defending his case. Filangieri haughtily replied that he was the Emperor's warden and would carry out the Emperor's instructions, so a gross violation of the constitution was achieved, which shocked even such moderates as Balian of Sidon and Odo of Montbelliar, who hitherto had, in fact, been ready to support the emperor. The whole of the baronage therefore moved over to John of Ebelin's party. The merchants of Acre, with whom John was popular and who resented Filangeri's high-handed methods, added their support. Most of them, together with a few of the nobles, belonged to a religious fraternity dedicated to St Andrew. Using that as a basis, they set up a commune to represent the whole of the local bourgeoisie under 12 consuls, and they invited John of Ebelin to be their first mayor. But Filangieri was formidable. He had a good army, mainly consisting of Lombards, that he had brought with him. The Teutonic Knights and the Pisan community were also his faithful friends. The Patriarch and the Hospital and the Temple held aloof. They, None of them cared for Frederick, but since his reconciliation with the Pope, they were uncertain where their duty lay. Meanwhile, John of Ebelin was in Cyprus thinking that Filangeri would attack the island before the mainland. Wrong-footed by Filangeri, he led his troops and those of Henry the King of Cyprus over to Beirut to meet Filangeri in battle. But Filangeri wrong-footed him again by striking at Cyprus. As Lombard troops landed and overran Cyprus, Filangeri struck at John of Ebelin outside Tyre and defeated his troops at a place called Castle Imbert. He, He then crossed over to Cyprus with his main army to complete the conquest of the island. John of Ebelin and King Henry of Cyprus decided to make Cyprus the main battleground and set sail from Acre on the 30th of May. They called at Sidon to pick up Balian of Ebelin, who was John of Ebelin's son, on his way from his embassy at Tripoli and crossed to Famagusta in Cyprus. Filangieri's Lombards were in the town with over 2,000 horsemen, while the Ebelins had only 233 soldiers. Nevertheless, John risked landing his main troops after dark on a rocky island just to the south of the harbour. It was unguarded as no one thought that horses could be put ashore there. Then a small detachment in boats forced its way into the harbour with such loud cries that the Lombards thought a great army was upon them. They fired their own ships and hastily left the town. In the morning, when the Eblin army crossed the rocks to the mainland, Famagusta was deserted. John stayed there long enough for the king to fulfil his promise to the Genoese who had provided the ships to transport the soldiers by signing a treaty with them which allotted them a quarter in the town. Then the Ebelin army set out for Nicosia. The Lombards had made themselves unpopular on the island of Cyprus by brutal behaviour, and they feared that the peasants would rise against them. As they retired before the Ebelins, they burnt all the granaries where the new harvest had just been stored. They decided not to hold Nicosia, but moved along the road that goes over the hills to Kyrenia, where they would be in touch with Philangeri himself, who was besieging the fortress of Dieu d'Amour. The garrison of Dieu was known to be starving and on the point of surrender if Filangieri could hold his enemies until the castle was in his power together with the king's two sisters who were within it he would be in a very strong position to bargain with the king of Cyprus. The Ebelins moved slowly to Nicosia suffering from lack of food but in Nicosia itself they found large stores overlooked by the Lombards John of Eblin was so suspicious of this that he would not camp within the city, but led his army on at once on the 15th of June towards Cairinia, intending to camp at Agridi, just below the pass. Fearing an attack at any moment, it marched in battle array. They were a small army so short of horses that the knight's squires had to fight on foot. To the Lombards looking down from the top of the pass, where the track from the fortress of Diodemur joins the road, they seemed contemptible. The order was given to attack them without delay.' The first troop of Lombard horsemen came thundering down the hill under the command of Walter, Count of Manupello. It passed along the flank of the Eblin army, but could not break its lines, and then it was carried on by the momentum of the charge into the plain below. John of Eblin forbade his men to pursue them, and the Lombards did not venture to turn and ride up the steep slope, but galloped on eastward, never stopping until they reached Gastria. The second Lombard troop under Walter's brother Berar, charge straight into the lines commanded by Hugh of Ebelin and Anselm of Brie, but the rough rocky hillside was difficult for the horses. Many stumbled and threw their riders, who were too heavily armed to regain their feet. The Ebelin knights fought mainly on foot and, though outnumbered, soon mastered the enemy. The Lombard leader Berar of Manupello was killed by Anselm of Brie himself. Filangieri, waiting at the head of the pass, had intended to come down to Berar rescue, but suddenly Balian of Ebelin appeared with a handful of knights who had ridden up from the rear of the Ebelin army by a mountainous track to the west of the road and charged into Filangieri's camp. Here again, the Lombards had the superiority in numbers and Balian was hard-pressed. His father refused to detach troops for his assistance, but soon Filangieri lost his nerve, finding that Manupello's divisions were not returning and led his men off in disorder down to Cairo. The fortress of Dieu was relieved, its besiegers fleeing southwestward into the plain, where, when darkness fell, they were surprised and captured by Philip of Navarra. Walter of Manupello reached Gastria, but the Templars who held the castle refused to admit him, and he was captured, hiding in the moat. The Eblin army captured Kyrenia in 1233 and the whole island of Cyprus was then fully restored to King Henry. John of Eblin and King Henry had defeated Philangeri and his Lombard troops, but they still held out in Tyre on the mainland where they would continue to hold out for several more years. Meanwhile, as Cyprus and Outremer were weakened by civil war, The Muslims did not take advantage of this. This was mainly due to the personality of the great Sultan Al-Kamil. Al-Kamil was a man of peace and honour. He was ready to fight and to indulge in unscrupulous intrigue in order to unite the Ayubite dominions under his rule, for the family quarrels and divisions were to no one's advantage, and he was ready to ward off attacks from the Seljuk Turks and the Khwarezmian Turks. But so long as the Christians cause no trouble, he would leave them in peace. All the Muslim princes were well aware of the commercial advantages of having the Frankish seaports close to their borders. They were unwilling to risk the dislocation of the great trade between the east and west by imprudent hostilities. Al-Kamil in particular was anxious to secure his subjects material prosperity. He was, moreover, a man of wide intellectual interests and curiosity and he was more genuinely tolerant and far more kindly than Frederick II. Though he lacked the heroic grandeur of his uncle Saladin and the brilliant subtlety of his father Al-Adil, he had more human warmth than either and he was an able king. Muslim contemporaries might deplore his liking for the blonde men of the West as they called the Crusaders, but they respected the justice and good order of his government. al succeeded in his ambition to restore unity to the Ayyubite world. In June 1229, his brother Al-Ashraf at last managed to oust their nephew An-Nazir from Damascus. An-Nazir was given as compensation a kingdom in the Jordan Valley and Transjordan, with Karak as its capital to hold under Al-Kamil's effective rule. Al-Ashraf kept Damascus but acknowledged Al-Kamil's authority and ceded to him lands in the Jazira and along the middle euphrates these were the provinces of the Ayyubite empire that were most open to attack and al-kamil wished to have a more direct control over them jalal ad the khwarizmian was a very positive menace and behind him to the east was the unknown strength of the mongols while the great seljuk sultan Kakubad was pressing eastward from anatolia in 1230, when Al-Ashraf was at Damascus, Jalal ad-Din, the leader of the Quarzians, captured his great fortress of Aklat near Lake Van and moved on to attack the Seljuks. Al-Ashraf hastened northward and made an alliance with the Seljuk Kakabad. The Allies decisively beat Jalal ad near Ezinjam. Attacked at the same time in the rear by the Mongols, the Khwarezmian Empire began to disintegrate. Next year, Jalal ad was defeated again, and during his flight from the battle, he was murdered on the 15th of August 1231 by a Kurdish peasant whose brother he had long ago slain. The elimination of the Khwarezmian Turks upset once more the balance of power. The Seljuks were left without a rival. Right in eastern Anatolia, and the Mongols could advance freely westward. Meanwhile, the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad enjoyed a few rare precarious months of independence. It was not long before the Selju Kakabad cast his eye on Al Kamil's lands on the Middle Euphrates. From 1233 to 1235, there was continual war while Edessa, Saruj, and other towns of the province passed from one master to the other, until at last Al Kamil re established his command. But in 1238, Alcamil died, and a civil war broke out amongst his relatives as the Muslim world was paralysed by this infighting. The treaty made between the German Emperor Frederick II and Al-Kamil came to an end. In preparation for this, Pope Gregory IX had sent out in the summer of 1239 agents to preach the crusade in France and England. Neither the French nor the English king felt ready to respond in person to his appeal, but they gave every encouragement to the preachers. By the early summer, a Distinguished company of French nobles was ready to sail for the east. At their head was Tybalt of Champagne, King of Navarre, the nephew. Of Henry of Champagne and cousin, therefore, to the kings of France, England, and Cyprus. With him were the Duke of Burgundy, Hugh IV, Peter Mouclair, Count of Brittany, and the Counts of Bar, Nevers, Montfort, Joigny, and Sancerre, and many lesser lords. The number of infantrymen was less than might have been expected, considering the eminence of the leaders, but the whole expedition was formidable. Tybald had hoped to embark with his Comrades at Brindisi, but wars between the German Emperor and the Pope made travel through Italy difficult, and the German Emperor, in whose dominions Brindisi lay, was not pleased by the crusade. He considered himself ruler of Palestine for his young son, and an expedition to help his kingdom should have been organised under his authority. He could not approve of French nobles whose instinct would certainly be to support the barons of Outremer against him. Moreover, aware of the position in the Muslim world, he hoped to drive a good bargain for the kingdom by diplomacy. The coming of these rash, impatient knights would ruin any such negotiations. But, owing to his troubles in Italy, he he could not afford to send men himself to control them; therefore, he secured a promise that dissociated himself from the whole crusade. The crusaders were therefore obliged to embark from aigues and Marseille. The crusade had a stormy voyage through the Mediterranean. Some of its ships being driven to Cyprus, and some even back to Sicily. But Tybald himself arrived at Acre on the first of September, and during the next few days, an army of about a thousand knights had assembled there. A council was held at once to decide how best this army could be used. Beside the visiting princes, the chief local barons were present with representatives from the military orders, while the Archbishop of Tyre, Peter of Sargin, deputised for the Patriarch of Jerusalem. It was a moment for diplomatic enterprise. The quarrels between Al-Kamil's relatives offered to the Christians the opportunity of using their new strength as a bargaining point and to obtain handsome concessions from one or other of the warring factions. But the Crusaders had come to fight. They would not follow the German Emperor Frederick II's disgraceful example of diplomacy. The local barons therefore recommended an expedition against Egypt. This would not only cause no offence to their immediate Muslim neighbours in Syria, but in view of the Sultan al-Adil's known unpopularity, promised a good chance of success. Others maintained that Damascus was the enemy, the army should fortify the Galilean castles, then march on against the Syrian capital. But Tybald desired a plurality of victories. He decided that the army would first attack the Egyptian outposts of Ascalon and Gaza, probably on the suggestion of the Count of Jaffa, Walter of Brienne, who did not belong to the Ebelin family faction. Then, when the southern frontier was secure, he would attack Damascus. On the news of his decision, messengers hurried around the Ayyubite courts to arrange a temporary armistice between the warring Muslim princes. The Muslim world was ready to reunite to face this crusader attack, and this time the crusaders would lose Jerusalem for good. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear what happened to Tybalt's crusade.